This is a Sharp Old Hat podcast and my name is Chris. I had the pleasure again to chat with a friend who is among many other remarkable things, kind, sociable, thoughtful, charitable, tough, clever, reflective, as well-read, has traveled the world and above all has the greatest sense of humor. This is a conversation with Bernadette Burke. Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, that's fair enough. So anyway, from England all the way, is it? Yes, yes. Um, but it's an accident of birth, I like to think. You know, I always think, uh, you know, if uh, if you... Well, I think you have a, 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 an interesting perspective on this anyway, because you always say you're Prussian, not German. But I think where you're born, of course, it shapes you. But I think the experience you have while you're there also shapes you. So my parents were economic immigrants. Mm. Yeah. So there wasn't much work for um, a clever um, engineer um, in Mayo at the time. And you've seen where my dad came from, you know, so oh, it's yeah. right on the edge of the Atlantic Ocean. And uh, he was a really smart man and wanted to do something a bit more interesting, I guess. So he left for England the first time and went to Halifax and, and got a, a job, a very menial job in, um, in a factory, which made him very miserable and upset because he was too smart for that. Um, and then he came back to Ireland and then went back to England and that happened a few times. Mum got the boat when she was 17. So she was from Monaghan, Dad's from Mayo. And uh, anyway, so long... that's the 1930s or something. No, <laughs> no. I don't know. <laughs> no, it was. I, actually, no, mum was born in 31 and she went when she was 17, so 48. So, yeah, the end of the 40s. Yeah. Um, and she, uh, she left because it, there was a marriage made. Um, or a match made be between her and, and a man they used to call the husband, her and her sister Bibi, uh. used to call this man the husband. And so basically the, the typical story of rural Ireland in those times where there was an older bachelor farmer living with the mammy and yeah. at the point when the mammy died, he would need the wife. So, you know, quite traditionally, and certainly in our family anyway, a lot of the men were a good deal older than the women hmm. uh, because they lived at home with their mother. And so that, so was this man, the husband, and I think my mother was so scared of that happening and her father didn't want it to happen. He helped her get the boat when oh, she was enough. 17, uh, took her down to Dublin and off she went to some cousins of theirs in a part of London, um, some McElwain cousins in a part of London. And then mum went to work in Tate and Lyle's sugar factory in Canningtown in the East End. Um, and then she started her uh, training to be a nurse. But that's really a typical story of the time. Absolutely. Nothing, you know, Dad was working in a factory. She was working in a factory until she got accepted into uh, to start her nursing in a place yeah. called Rush Green Hospital in, in, in Dagenham, East London, where made famous by the Ford, Ford Motor Company and the, uh, and the women fighting. Yeah, and the women fighting yeah. for equal pay. So, um, so yeah, so she, she trained there. Yeah. And then decided she wanted to continue into midwifery. And at some point went to a place called Luton, which is a small republic of Ireland in the southeast <laughs> of England. I've been there. I drank in the Heron. 
<laughs> oh, really? Yeah, they been... did, yeah. Well, a lot of people would know it for the airport or for what they used to call the Vauxhall. So I, I yeah. love the, you know, the 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 Irish immigrant. Uh, they do love a direct article when there's anything important like the dinner or the Christmas or the yeah. Vauxhall. So the Vauxhall was a big, big car plant in Luton um, in Germany, I guess you'd call it. Uh, and what is it called in Germany? Opel. Opel, thank you, yeah. And it's called Opel here, actually, but it was called Vauxhall there. So, um, again, Dad thought, I guess, he wanted to, you know, go and use his engineering skills and didn't, just worked on the production line. Um, and quickly went up the ranks of shop steward and was a big union man and got into a lot of trouble. Um, as my mother would say it, um, but it was out of work a lot and there was not a lot of money coming in. But mum, so they met, they met somehow in Luton because um, he was at the Vauxhall and mum was then doing her midwifery. midwifery. And um, yeah, so they got together and stayed in Luton. Uh, my father was never happy in England. He because suffered. it wasn't a holiday and they didn't go there by choice, obviously. No, so no. It was the place of work. And, uh, exactly. And they suffered an awful lot of racism. You know, they were... They've been treated very well there, yeah. They were there at the times where it was, you know, no blacks, no dogs, no Irish. Damn. And they would find it hard to get, you know, they used to have rooming houses, they were called, mm. you know, boarding houses. And they would find it very difficult to find anywhere to live. You know, they would be called... But, they, you know, it was, there was a lot of racism. I mean, I think it was very bad for them because it was bad for me and it wasn't as bad for me as it was for them, me and my sister. But you um, wouldn't have had an, an Irish accent when you That's, were. well, a lot of my uh, friends who are first generation British still have a bit of a, an Irish accent, but mum and dad didn't want us to because I think they just didn't want us to have the racism that they'd suffered. Yeah, of course. Mum didn't suffer as much. She, you know, there was a lot of Irish and West Indian women in nursing at the time. So mum was one of many. Uh, but dad would be one of a lot of Irish who just got treated quite badly. Yeah. And because my dad was lippy, you know, he was articulate, he had a lot to say, you know, the, the chin would come out and, uh, <laughs> yeah, he, he got into a lot of trouble. And that made things difficult, I think, for him and my mum. But my mum always earned, you know, she was always working. She went back to work when I was six weeks old. She did the same with my sister and... She had a car because she was a community midwife. She started on oh, a bike right, yeah. and then had a car. So um, there was always that stability, thank God. Um, but it wasn't like the way it's now, like you just hop on the board or get the cheap Ryanair flight for God, no. 20 quid. Like, no. So obviously when you left in those days, obviously London being a lot closer to, um, to Ireland than mm. the States or Australia, but when you left, you left. When you left, you left. I mean, you went home for funerals and yeah. if you could afford a, a, a wedding, you know, or... Um, but we were very lucky because the whole time before my mum and dad got divorced, um, but before they got divorced, they always came home and they always called it home and we called it home because they called it home. We didn't know any different. And of course, they wanted to come home and see their parents and their families. Sure. So um, but also because my mum worked. Um, she needed babysitters, you know, so it was, yeah. <laughs> it was a long way to come. But that's what happened, you know. So they would come for two weeks. We would normally come on the boat with them. And then they would drive off after two weeks. We'd be left in Monaghan. Um, and then we would we'd have, a, a, a you know, some time in Mayo. And then we'd be left in Monaghan uh, with my mum's brother. 
Uncle Jimmy, and his poor wife, who didn't even have kids at the time. And uh, they, they took us for the summer and we were put to work at a working farm. And then at some point, we would be driven the back way up to uh, Carrick on Shannon, and we would be handed over in a pub. Sometimes we'd be left there with a the Lucaside if Jimmy needed to get back. <laughs> and Bibi would arrive at some point, my mum's sister, who also married a Mayo man, whom she met at my mum and dad's wedding, who was also working at the Vauxhall. And um, then, then Bibi would take us over to, to Mayo. So we always spent a lot of time in Mayo. So my mother's sister also married a Mayo man. So Mayo's always featured heavily, you know. On, so yeah. you would have grown up actually with the sense uh, instilled in you by your parents, like, you're an Irish person. Totally. So totally. that was never in question, you're not no. English or you're no. a, even an immigrant, you're just no. Irish and that's it. But yeah, we didn't know we were. But then you went home every year or so. Oh, well, we'd go three times a year. We went the whole oh, really? for Christmas holidays, yeah. Mum always made it happen. Yeah. The, there, was a, there was a number of years when we couldn't go when she and Dad got divorced and there was, there was literally no money to be had. And as soon as there was again, we started coming again. And it was... I mean, I, I remember going back to school and I was in Mr Lloyd's class. Oh, how old would I have been? I'd have been seven or eight. And um, we uh, had to write a little story about what we'd done in the summer holidays. And a girl called Anne McIntyre wrote this little story and he, he said, who wants to read their story out? And Anne McIntyre put her hand up and she read her, it was only about four sentences, but anyway, they'd been camping in the south of France. And Mr. Lloyd said, has anyone got any questions? And no one had any questions, but I did. So I put my hand up and I said, where in Ireland is the south of France? <laughs> I didn't know that people didn't go. I didn't. I, I thought it was the only place it went. I thought everyone went on holiday. You know, I'd never had a relative measure around that. <laughs> and uh, I remember him pulling me up to the to the to the front of the class. And there was this big globe which I loved, and he pulled Anne McIntyre up and he said, "Would she like to show me and the rest of the class where the south of France was?" And God love her, she couldn't find it um, on on the globe because none of us really knew. You know, we yeah. we didn't know. We were seven or eight years old, so. So, and yeah, I guess, so for, for the longest time, we only ever came here. It was called home, and that's what we thought of as home. But in addition to that, the part of Luton we lived in, which was very, very Irish and had so many uh, immigrants, and all the, at that point, the immigrants were basically Irish. Um, the part that we lived in <clears throat> was a council estate, and it was called Farley Hill, and um, we went to the Catholic school there and the Catholic church and the Catholic club. And the Catholic club was apparently built and, and, and money was collected by all of the, the men on the estate. But everyone was Irish. Yeah, everyone yeah. was Irish. So until I was 11 and went to senior school, you know, I, I don't think I'd really heard many English accents. Like they, Mr. Pratt in the paper shop had an English accent um, we would go over the ring to the shops and Mr Pratt, Dave Pratt, had an English accent and I used to think he spoke funny. Uh, and a few other people, and then Auntie Rose next door was Scottish and then everyone else was Irish. Everyone. Uh, well, that's that ghetto thing you find in any big city yep. as well. Like, maybe the Indians, maybe the Turks, maybe whoever, like yeah. you know, those ethnic groups seem to stick together anyway, yeah. which you and me would do as well to some yeah, extent. Like, absolutely. In those yeah. circumstances. But so you grew up... English, uh, you grew up in England as an Irish person and that was your whole 
conception of yourself when you got older and then you went to college. And where did you go to college then? I went to Leicester um, and I did a degree in um, English literature and <laughs> political thought. And I was the first person in our whole family on my mother and my father's side to, to get a degree. Uh, and this was seen by my parents as a, as a source of pride, but by just about everyone else in the family as a complete waste of time. Uh, and what job was I going to get after it? That was... That was the whole thing. Why? It why would you do that? It wasn't particularly functional. That sort of thing, like yeah. And I just loved reading, so mm. that's and I loved thinking, so and that's why I chose what I did. Yeah. And I have to say, it was it was great, and it was. Yeah, I mean, I just got to spend three years doing something that I loved, and I made great friends, yeah. and it was really interesting being outside of Luton because right. Luton by that point had started to become not a nice place to be. Very, very small-minded. Um, it was it was somewhere w which did attract a lot of immigration because of this Vauxhall and all the related sure. businesses around. Um, by the time I left, there was a huge, huge, huge Pakistani and Bengali um, community and a lot of just people who, as an immigrant community themselves... You know, we're seeing a little bit of that going on here right now and, in, you know, down the road in Inch. As an immigrant community themselves, not particularly compassionate or kind to the next wave of immigration. Um, and Luton just wasn't a nice place. I never liked it, ever. It's not a particularly pleasant place. Like, I've been there a couple mm. of times. Like, that's going back in the 90s, say. But um, there's a difference between immigration out of necessity and when people sort of congregate in one particular area of a town or of a city um, because that's where the factory is, that's where the work is, yeah. or that's where the rents are cheap. Yeah. Whereas when, when you mention here, like yeah. because everybody seems to be from somewhere else and there are all sorts of nationalities here, but uh, seeing it's a very affluent area, people are really here by choice and you meet, you meet your own socioeconomic group rather than your own ethnic group. Yeah. yeah. No, no, difference. no. I know it's not the same. I do yeah. know it's not the same because down there, I mean, I think there's, you know, without taking the conversation off, I do think that um, there's a, a it seems to be there's a complete disregard to talk to any of the communities that, you know, a number of young single men are being sent to. And if you are a woman, it is scary. Oh, yeah, that, absolutely. You, know, you may have no basis for your fear other than there's a load of single men oh. or a load of men because when you're a woman that you, that's your experience. It's scary, yeah. right? So anyway, yeah, yeah. So back to back to lovely Luton, Farley Hill. It was a rough upbringing. It was full of very rough people. Um, there's a saying that you and and a lot of my friends have said this to me. You can take the girl out of Farley Hill, but you can't take the Farley Hill out of the girl. So brought up to to be a bit of a scrapper. To and and my father was the same. Uh, you know, the, there's a there's a lot of chin out and you know. And uh, would you would you? To look after yourself, when you, God. When you yeah. gear up, would you say, Oi! Oi! <laughs> 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 but you know, it was just rough. You got beat up. You got bullied. My poor sister got horrifically bullied. Yeah. Horrifically bullied. Some really, really awful things happened to her. So there was always, you know, it was always a bit edgy, a bit dodgy, and you had to look after yourself. And then sure. and that was part of the, you know, the the, the identity of you. And, and also because you suffered. So when we went to. Uh, senior school at the age of 11 we, we, there was just so much racism yeah. and 
you know, maybe it was only name-calling. It wasn't. It was more than that. But when you're 11, all you want to do is be invisible and the same as everyone else, or when mm. you're 11 or 12. And um, anything that others do is really, really difficult. And then by sort of mid-teens again, we were coming back here, and then suddenly we were the tourists. Of course. You and know. you have that funny accent, like yeah. you're from over there. Yeah. Yep. So there's always been this sense of dislocation, this yeah. complete sense of dislocation. You're not fully British and you're not fully Irish. And there is this in-betweenness about you where you don't fully fit anywhere. So the first time I moved somewhere else, I loved it because no one had a, pers a perspective. I was obviously an expat or an immigrant. Mm -hmm. I was an expat because it was just a, a two-year, um, you know, a two-year stint. Um, but no one was giving me hell about the accent I had, yeah. for example, yeah. or, you know, the provenance or where I came from. Yeah. I was just some white expat. Yeah. And that made it quite easy to fit in. And, for, uh, and it was one of the first places where I really felt like I fit in, yeah. which was interesting for me. Anyway. Yeah. When Morrissey wrote the song about it before he went completely daft. <laughs> <laughs> what about being that sort of dislocation of that? That's, yeah, isn't mm. that um, that's, that's third, fourth album after Smith when he went solo? I only bought the first um, two. I, I went off the Irish Heart, English Blood, or ah, the yes. other way around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I do know that uh, one. I yeah. think there were two or three songs on that theme, theme around that yeah. time by Moza, like, and then he went completely bonkers. Yeah. But, uh, speaking of which, um, how did you actually continue living after you've interviewed Billy Bragg? I mean, you were at the pinnacle of your life. <laughs> what else was there supposed to come? Please do tell me again. So we had this uh, magazine. Um, and in college, wasn't it? Yeah, in college where I was doing my degree in Leicester. And uh, we were very lucky that we got... One of one of my best friends, Stugall, uh, was on the ENTS committee, so the Entertainments Committee. It was oh. a big deal in the in the student union, and um, we would get in, and we had events every Wednesday and every Saturday. I mean, every Wednesday and every Saturday, and we're talking, you know, like the associates, um, obviously Billy Bragg, you know, the residents, the monochrome set. I mean, we had some really really interesting people as well as, well, there was no pop. There was, there was just yeah. no pop. I mean, it was, you of know, course. all indie bands. A lot of reggae, a lot of ska, you yeah. know, like that. Um, and so I was writing, for, I can't remember what the magazine was called, it had a stupid name, but I was writing for the magazine and uh, I'd get the nod, you know, from Dougal and he'd say, do you want to meet so-and-so and interview yeah. them? And I'd be like, yeah, damn right, I do. <laughs> I only have about 10 minutes. And most of the time they'd be completely trashed anyway. You know, it was that, it was the 80s, you know, it was a long time yeah. ago. Um, but Billy Bragg was part of what they were called the Red Wedge Tour. So yeah. it was the Style Council as was. Uh, so before Paul Weller became yeah. solo, um, Billy McKenzie and the Associates, Steel Pulse, um, the reggae band, brilliant reggae band from Hansworth in Birmingham, oh. Billy Bragg, and a few others. There were about seven in it. And uh, yeah. It was great, and it was all just around the, the time of the miners' strike. Uh, um, so it was very, very political, and yeah. And, did and life ever get any better after this? I, I mean, was how fantastic. could it? Like? It was fantastic. Yeah. It really was. And you're at the right age as well, like, you know, yeah. your early 20s, this is just the best thing that could happen yeah. to you. Girl fanning all over the place. Yeah. It was brilliant. I mean, you know, yeah, we all thought, oh, who's the other guy? Robert Wyatt. I don't know if you know that song, uh, Shipbuilding. 
by Robert mm-hmm. Wyatt. Uh, very, it's all about the, yeah. Yeah, it's it's a very political song and it's a really beautiful song. Um, he was on the tour as well. Sorry, I just remember. Is he that. from Newcastle? I think yeah. I, I, it's a, it's I remember the, the name the, somehow. Yeah. The, it's it's all about shipbuilding in Newcastle, yeah. and the, the, the death of shipbuilding, and and what kind it did to people's yeah. yeah, what it did to people's yeah. lives. So yeah, no, yeah. It's, it's cool. It was really cool. <laughs> yeah, a lot of those interviews I can't remember because I was completely drunk. We used to drink snake bite at the time, so that was lager and um, cider yeah. in a pint, and with a perna and black dropped into it in the oh, glass. Geez. Yeah, <laughs> what did they call that? They called them vipers or something. I think yeah. Yeah, and it, it was so have... cheap, you know, because we used to. It was all bloody. I think it was a lot cheaper in those days compared yeah, but to it was the really, wages. It, but yeah. it, it, even if you compared the the price of the in the JCR, the Junior Common Room, or yeah. the Union, it, to a pub, it was super cheap. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. But we had a lot of. I mean, that's that's your prerogative. Actually, it's your duty to you know in your early twenties <laughs> just pissed. to try all those things. Like. <laughs> I never got to see, um, got to interview Billy Bragg. I only had a conversation once with him. Oh, you did? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah, Um, But I was, I was out all day, and at the end of the gig, like he was signing a couple of uh, t-shirts and selling CDs Mm. and all that, like, and I was hammered, so I went up to him (laughs) and I said, Um, yeah, and then I saw a friend of mine recorded that and I saw myself like having a conversation with Billy Bragg for about two minutes. He's just looking at me. Oh, he's a tiny fella, like he's looking he's up. He's not very me. tall, no, I know. Like, yeah. What's wrong with him? So take him away. <laughs> but uh, so anyway, you were um, then in the in the student like scene active doing the student union paper yeah. and all that sort of yeah. thing. And what was your first gig after college? Because the reason why I wanted to talk to you was all your travels yeah. and how you ended up here. Yeah. Like. So that's from Newton to Leicester. And um, what was your first gig in the real world then um, after that? Well, after that, I went to work for... Um, I just I just needed to clear off my overdraft. I had a £300 overdraft at the that. time, which was huge at the time. Yeah. And, um, which I you spent a... on sensible things, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well... Um, Yes, very sensible things, like food and booze. Um, but I was originally going to do um, uh, a master's in, um, gosh, Lantricent, or no, not Lantricent, Lampeter in North Wales um, okay. on concrete poetry. People like Ezra Pound, T.S. Eliot. <laughs> yeah. So um, I was, that's, that's what I was going to do. And I couldn't get, I couldn't get a um, grant and I couldn't afford to do it. Oh, okay. So Ezra Pound, who would have thought? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Concrete poetry, visualized, visual. Uh, the, the the idea uh, of the the word taking shape to create a piece of art was yeah. very interesting to me. So, anyway, um, couldn't do that. Then I decided I do teach training. Anyway, that didn't happen. Another long story, long boring story. So started applying for jobs. Went back to Luton. Was working in the pub, the local pub uh-huh. called the Parrot. And then also started working in another pub called the Moulders, which was just full of Irish people. So distant relatives of my mum's the Duggans in in Luton and they basically used to run every pub and club and wine bar and what have you and yeah. there was 11 boys and one woman and it was all a bit there, there, there was some dodginess going on there as well but anyway great people if you were in you were in and they looked after us so that's what I was doing applying for jobs um eventually I got three job offers and what I really wanted to do was go to Virago Women's Press. It was a feminist uh, publishing company. Mm. 
um, and work as a desk editor. And I did get an offer, but it paid £5,000 a year. And I got a job offer from this company called Macro Marketing, which paid 12000 And then I can't remember the third offer, but it wasn't twelve. And yeah, in your 20s, that's a no-brainer, really, isn't well, it? Well, a no-brainer, but I also got a car, and they yeah. put me up for three months rent-free well, while I was doing that? training. It was in Slough. Oh, I know Slough from the office. Yes, and, come, and the John Betjeman, come holy bombs, yeah, and... It's, it's not a, it was just like Luton, except yeah. different. It was just like Luton, but uh, the house we lived in was in Maidenhead, which was terribly posh, poshest place I'd ever lived up until then. Yeah, so I I started working at that company. I was there 18 months, and myself and another group of people... But you people, weren't slow all the time? No, no, thank God. No, I started working in... Uh, I, had, I was a sales rep for a semiconductor company, and I was given the city and east of London as... And Dagenham, and basically where my mum had originally okay. lived as an area. And um, I did pretty well. And then I was promoted. And then I got paid more. And then I moved to East and moved up to East Anglia and um, bought my first house when I was 26. And not a house, it was a flat in a little place called St. Neats in Cambridgeshire. Oh. And, um, and then myself and a, a few of us were asked to go and join another company. We were effectively headhunted. I didn't know that's what it was called at the time. And um, basically they were going to give us a 50% pay rise and let us choose our own cars. So we're like, yeah, where where do I sign? This is great. So that was a Canadian company and it was the Canadian company that Annette almost went to work for. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Future Electronics. And that was in 1988 and... They gave me the first opportunity to go and live and work somewhere else. Okay. So after a number of years selling and then just sort of, you know, getting better at what I did and getting promoted and earning more money and getting bored and I was going to leave, they said, how do you fancy going to Singapore? So I remember making... Oh, you didn't go to Canada? No, no, went went to Singapore, yeah. All right. Yeah, yeah. I went to Singapore and I remember making a list of pros and cons with my best friend at the time, Catherine. Bless her, she she died a few years ago. And... um, literally pros and cons and it was nothing to do with the job it was like because I've got very straight hair she's like you'll get a good haircut uh, so that's that's a pro con the men are very small because she was <laughs> she was six foot and I was five ten yeah. and so this list we had a list of pros and cons that had absolutely nothing to do with the yeah. job and I just thought you know uh, how difficult can it be you know why, you know, why not? I'm nosy. I'm curious about the world. So off I went and I lived in Singapore for a couple of years. And part have, of... Have you, sorry, mm. have you actually been on holidays then, say, between say your college years and, and this time now, late 20s, early 30s? Yeah. Have you been on regular holidays then and have seen a little bit of the world other than Ireland? When you went not really. Um, where had I been? No, not really. Uh, I did travel an awful lot. So before I went to Singapore with the job, with Future yeah. Electronics, I traveled an awful lot. They sent me to Canada for a four-week training course. They're based in Montreal. Oh, okay. yeah. I then went down to the States, took two weeks off. And then yeah. when I went back, uh, the company was expanding in Europe and I was often asked to go off and do different things in different parts of Europe. For but the, like in and out, you wouldn't have seen in like and out. the place. Basically like, in and out, unless it yeah. was Friday and I might stay for the weekend. Okay, and, but, and, but not... Not really, still not really yeah. seen much. No, not so, really. And no money. And then, like I said, uh, I bought a house, um, a flat, and it was, uh, I bought it in 87, 88. And in the UK, it, it, there was a terrible, terrible um, financial 
crash, I guess, going on. And there was this thing called negative equity. So I had negative equity and and, and it was like a, it was just such a weight around my neck. Well, I know we had that then. What ten years ago, twelve years ago, here in mm. Ireland as well, our house yeah. was in negative equity yeah. as well. Right. Beautiful spot to be in. Well, there was one point where I was working full time. I had my company car, everything else, my fax machine at home, and I couldn't pay my mortgage. Mm. I couldn't pay my mortgage from 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 my net salary. Yeah. Um, so I I also started working in the pub again. I went and worked part time in a pub in St Neots called the Old yeah. Sun. It was a lovely pub. And that was just, you know, to try and make my mortgage payments and to buy food. And uh, it was yeah, it was rough. It was really, really rough. But the, I wasn't the only person. There was quite a few people in yeah, that, course, yeah. that I knew anyway um, that, that went through that. But I eventually got rid of it. I remember I was in Sydney, Australia when I finally sold the house, the flat, I should say. And I was just delighted. But, um, but no, I hadn't really done much travel before then. So anyway, and that's you just basically made your list and um, decided Singapore made, it is. Made my ridiculous list. I had actually been, so before that, I should say, I had been to Australia. I had gone sort of okay. solo, yeah, I'd gone solo traveling and then met with really good friends um, yeah. when I was in Australia. So I had done that, but I had gone to Thailand um so I travelled through Thailand, Malaysia, got to Singapore, which was, I, di- I didn't spend any time in Singapore. That yeah. was just a leaping off point to then go to Australia. So I did lots of different islands in Thailand and went to lots of lovely places in Malaysia. Um, yeah, and I spent about four months doing that. Yeah. Um, and then but again, in, that's a holiday. Yeah, that was it. Yeah. So, so yes, I did. But the, the, again, there wasn't that many countries. Yeah. It was really when I got to Singapore that I started travelling. Because from there, you could, the whole of Southeast Asia was open to you. I mean, at the time when I was there, because I went in um, 95 to 98, the end of 97, um, it was really, really expensive. There was no such thing as low flight, you know, low low-budget flights, but you could walk across the causeway into Malaysia, into JB, Johor Bahru, okay. and the flights from there would be much cheaper. So, you know, we would often go to Bali for the weekend, as you do. As you do, yeah. yeah. Or pop up to some KL, Kuala Lumpur, or Penang in Malaysia, yeah. or across to Bintan or Batam yeah. in Indonesia, or go for a long weekend to Indonesia, um, how, how do you? How did you live in Singapore? Was it like an apartment, or did you share with people? No, I had an apartment. How? I had my own apartment. So okay. the one thing that company did—I mean, they really ripped me off. I mean, I was just such a naive expat. You know, I got to Singapore, yeah. and all that. There were all these expat people working for corporations smaller than mine, getting you know a really good deal, and I yeah. didn't. I was more along the sort of nurses and teachers. Yeah. But that was fine. That but was look, absolutely um, fine. You live and learn, like it, yeah. And I wasn't but, really open to the expat yeah. lifestyle. To be perfectly so honest. how how did you live? Did you really integrate then into whatever's in Singapore? Because I, I have no idea what Singapore's like. Yeah. Apart from yeah. um, was it a lot of small men? Like a lot of small men. <laughs> but did you Pencil penises, like? Do yeah. you go to do you go to the supermarkets <laughs> like the Singaporeans do, uh, or um, go to the pubs there? Do they have pubs? I have no idea. Yeah. Or do you yeah. tend to stay with um, the expats who yeah. at least speak your language? It's a great question, actually, because um, when I got there, I had these very noble ideas that I was going to integrate with the locals, and I didn't want to be like these expat assholes um, that all get there. You know, they come out of a some housing estate in Basildon or Chelmsford. The gated communities. Yeah, and then they sometimes they go there and they've suddenly got a maid that they treat really badly. You know, and they're just. 
empathetic people from Essex or whatever. Um, no offence to anyone in Essex, but it was just, you know, it's just like they, they become really, you know, first class assholes. And I, I didn't want to be with those people. Yeah. So I'm like, you know, I'm going to mix. Should we all met them in yeah. the world? Like, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So I'm going to mix with the locals. Um, but the locals did not want to mix with me. Okay. So I, I, uh, so Do they speak English? Yeah, yeah. So there's four, okay. four official languages in Singapore. So yeah. there's, um, gosh, what are they? English, which they call Singlish because it's very sort of contracted and very simple English. Um, Malay, Mandarin, mm, oh, and Tamil. Yeah, ah, okay. Tamil. Yeah. So they're the four... Official languages yeah. of But English gets you by. English, oh, absolutely. English gets you by. And work is conducted, you know, in corporate, in the corporate world. Uh, um, they're all international companies and English was the language. Um, but what I didn't know was that Chinese Singaporeans, now they, this may have changed because this was a long time ago, so in the mid-90s. Uh, but Chinese Singaporeans were phenomenally racist and, and, and xenophobic. So... I would walk in every and I went in as a female that was five foot ten and white mm. and into a position of authority. Yeah. And and again I thought, well, how difficult can it be? And um people just wouldn't even talk to me. There was one person in the office that spoke to me, my dear friend Monish, he came from New Delhi, he was amazing, really mm. bright spark, really good guy. Um, but I would walk in every morning and say, Morning and uh no one would say a word. So work wasn't really a fun place. Oh, it was be. awful. It was awful. And then I got involved in all, in all sorts of corporate politics with the company I was working for as well. It became very difficult. It became yeah. very, very difficult. And it took time. But eventually I became very good friends with a Korean woman who's, ama who's amazing. Koreans, are, they call them the Italians of Asia. You know, very expressive. <laughs> I've never heard that one. Yeah, very expressive, very funny. She loved swearing. Um, and then a couple of the Chinese women became friendly, but a lot of them didn't. A lot of them didn't. But, I mean, I got another promotion when I was there, and I was hiring people. I had to hire people. Yeah. I had to do everything, basically, there as well. I, it was just every single day my job changed, and it was a huge learning curve. But um, there was a point of time where I had hired a number of engineers, and there was two guys, Charlie and Jeffrey, who I got on really, really well with. And... Um, I uh, I would go in every morning and say good morning, and they started talking to me, and they'd say uh, morning, Angel, and I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm rocking here, I'm killing it. And I remember being out on Saturday night with a very good friend of mine. She was an Australian Spanish girl, and her best friend was Malay, Indigenous Malay from Singapore. And I told them this, and she said, Fatima said, that's not good, Ben. And I'm like, what, what, what do you mean? And she said, Angel means like red skin. It's uh, okay. what they call, what, it's really derogatory. It's like you walking in and saying, good morning, chinky, right? All right, yeah. So the next Monday I walked in and I said, good morning. And a few people said, morning, young well. And I said, yeah, and fuck you. <laughs> fuck all of you calling me that. That's really, you know, unpleasant. And anyway, they all looked a bit sheepish. And then the next morning I walked in, morning. And before, they didn't miss a beat, Charlie and uh, Jeffrey just... Um, looked back at me and went, fuck you. And then that became our morning ritual. <laughs> but eventually, it took a long time. I think they, I had to really prove myself to them. Yeah. Um, but but it, it was more, it was more the, um, the racism than misogyny you would experience. Oh, there. no, the misogyny was profound as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah that was really bad. So that you got really it from really both bad. sides. And yeah. um, mm. 
having been the Paddy and Luton and having been the English tourist uh, when you went back to Mayo. Back to, yeah. So, um, any pleasantness in your life? <laughs> my social <laughs> Interview life. Interviewing Billy Bragg. No, my social life was fabulous. Yeah. My social life was fabulous. And I was, you know, they weren't very nice to me in the office and there were all these politics, but through adversity, yeah. you meet great people as well. Yeah. There were some great people I worked with in Singapore, phenomenal people I worked yeah. with in Montreal who are still good friends and lots of adventures. But I just met great People. I got lucky and I oh. met great people. Um, some of them were indigenous Singaporeans, some of them were expats, but they were, there was a great, a very good friend of mine, and she was a teacher, quite a lot of teachers, quite a lot of nurses, yeah. believe it or not. Um, and we just, we just had fun. We, I mean, it was, I was, I was only in my early 30s, still, I could still drink then and oh, yeah, function the next yeah. day. So, yeah, no, so we had a lot of good fun and traveled and traveled and traveled and traveled so Went singapore everywhere. was really limited to um a, an experience mingling with other expats not being sort of the english-speaking expats but there have been <laughs> korean and indian and what have you yeah but um so but the place itself didn't really turn out the way you would live would have lived in berlin for example where you oh, go God, to the no. supermarket where you go to the local pubs where you have the local friends and all that sort of thing yeah so it, no. it was somewhat a secluded experience. Yeah, say. I'd say so. It's it's like Asia for beginners. It really is. And yeah. um, most of my friends were non-Chinese. Yeah. Although I had, I did have two really, three really good ones. There was Sandia, I told you about, Korean, Navalin and Scan yeah. and Catherine Lim. Yeah, so maybe four or five um, that, that, you know, I'm still in touch with to this day. Oh, um, really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. still really good people. But they're not in Singapore anymore. <clears throat> Either. They are. No, are they really? Yeah, yeah, they were all Singaporean, the ones I just thought about. Yeah, four four women. Oh, right. Well, Sandy was Korean, married to a Singaporean. Um, but no, there were some good people there. But that's what travel is about anyway, living in any place uh, exactly. for an extended period of time. It's really exactly. about the people because uh, once you've seen the pyramids, well, you know that they are there and you've seen them, but uh, any place is just about the people anyway. It is. And also, the level to which I could be successful there was all about the people as yeah. well. You know, none of us are successful on our own. So, you know, one of the one of the jobs I got after a while, because my job changed every day, and one of the jobs I got was to set up new sales offices across Asia Pacific, mm. across the 12 countries in the end, including Singapore. Uh, now, there were already offices in Hong Kong and Taiwan and Singapore, and that was it. So it became then part of my job to work on that. Yeah. And there's no way that's going to work yeah. Unless you can get other people yeah. on board. Um, another one of my jobs was to open up a warehouse in Singapore um, for semiconductors. And semiconductors have a shelf life and they also are quite sensitive yeah. to heat and humidity and so on and so forth. So right. there we are in Singapore, you know, 32 degrees. Add tools of witchcraft. And 100% humidity. <laughs> so, uh, But yeah, so I, I would just have to get people on board, you know, and, 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 and I would have to ask for an awful lot of help. So it was quite... That was great. I had to ask for help. I had well, to ask you're communicative anyway. And yeah. if you're in a position then to exercise your, your communication skills, like out of necessity, that's great. Like, you know, that's yeah. the way to meet people then and yep. uh, forge bonds with some of the people, exactly. or very few of the people you meet, exactly. but you do nonetheless. Like, yeah. And would you, like you're in Singapore there for, what, three years, you said? Almost yeah? three, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Would you go back home on a regular basis? Um, I did... In the beginning, I think I went out in the August, I definitely came back that Christmas because I remember having a conversation with my mum. Was home being then Luton? Home, that was it, that was the UK, yeah, because yeah, mum, that's where mum was, um, and my dad. Um, but I remember not loving it, 
I'd, I'd, I'd only worked and it was the work was very difficult and yeah. the culture shock was phenomenally difficult. I yeah. wasn't expecting it. That's how stupid I was. Um, and I remember uh, I said, I come, Mum said, well, come come back. And I said, I can't, I'll have failed. And she said, no, she said, it just didn't fit. I remember having that whole conversation with her about it. It just wouldn't, it's just, just it didn't fit you. And I said, oh, that made me feel better about it. So I went back and I promised myself if by the end of February I hadn't met anyone and didn't have a social life, that was it, I would do. That would yeah. be done six months. And as soon as I went back, there was almost something that clicked in my brain because I'd made my mind up yeah. that, you know, I was going to leave if it didn't work and then just met loads of people. Um, but I wouldn't after that because I just wanted to travel as much as I could there. Now, I travelled loads there because this whole office set up, I mean, yeah, okay. the... You know, there was very few places I didn't go to. And then there was the whole of Indochina. We had no offices there. So it was important for me to, to also be able to travel to places that I couldn't get to with work. Because <laughs> yeah, yeah. a lot of my travel I've done has been on someone else's coin, which is oh, great. Oh, yeah. But, yeah. But Vietnam, Cambodia and Laos at that point wasn't active in the semiconductor business. So, you know, I had to pay to go. <laughs> <laughs> I had to pay myself for those trips. <laughs> and the Philippines, although we did get an office in the end in the Philippines. But yeah, no, so that was an awful lot of traffic, uh, travel. Um, India. Um, but that's war travel, like you're basically on the on the road Work. or on an airport. Yeah. Like, uh, Oh, no, no, I would stay, yeah, I would have to stay until uh, the office was set up. I'd have to find the facility. I'd have to hire people. I'd have to get the infrastructure. Oh, right. And then I would... Uh, need to find someone to run it. So it would have been several weeks to several months. Yeah, I think um, the longest I spent anywhere in one go was three months. Yeah, that yeah was okay, that makes Seoul. sense. So it's not in and out, uh, do a no. conference and no. go the next day yeah. or even... They'd always get, yeah, I'd always have a, like a service department. And, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, and that's Singapore then, and um, then you transferred straight away to Canada or no. did you go somewhere else? No, I went back that? to the UK after that. My job yeah. changed then. Um, so up until that, up until the point before I went to Singapore, I'd been in sales and sales leadership. Um, and then I got a little bit into lean manufacturing. I don't want to go down a rabbit hole of, of you know, what I was doing, but um, I'm a bit of a geek about those things. Then when I was in Singapore, I, I basically saw the whole business apart from the finance side. Um, so I had a, a much wider interest in business than rather just one little thing. And so... Uh, when I came back, to cut a very long story short, I went into um, people and performance, people, performance and productivity. So um, basically making sure that that we had the right people in, on the right seat, mm. you know, with the right skills. And that was the most amount of fun because we'd never done that before. And I had a boss who really believed in me, became a mentor for me, really amazing man. And um, basically, if it made sense, I got free reign. So I built a team in Europe and then went back to Asia and built a team there and had responsibility for them remotely. And then finally, <clears throat> at the end of that, in um, 2003, the, the mothership, the head office in Montreal, decided that they wanted me to go and work there. But they actually wanted me to go and work for less money and less vacation. So, yeah, I mean... So you jumped at the opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> so they spent a year... Um, trying to work a deal and I said it's really really simple you just have to pay me the same 
plus an uplift for my inconvenience uh, and you need to give me the same vacation. Okay, you negotiated a good deal for yourself, but that's from England. Like England was your base then again. Well, England was my base refuse yeah. until I went to Montreal. Yeah. So but for, for a year before I went, from sort of the end of 2002 to the yeah. end of 2003, I was traveling the whole time backwards and forwards. Yeah. Um, and then finally they caved. They gave me the deal I wanted. Yeah. And, I mean, it was more money at that at that point than I'd ever earned. It was just, woohoo, yeah. I, can't believe they, <laughs> I can't believe they did that. So I went to Montreal. So, yeah, yeah so that was uh, actually April 1st, 2004. April Fool's Day was the day yeah. I started working in Montreal. And I was there for almost three years. Again, another yeah. sort of three-year stint. And that But was fabulous. When you're in England and kind of between Singapore and Montreal, um, would you have come to Ireland regularly as oh, well? All the time. All the time. So all the there time. was something that called yeah. you back to Ireland always, all the time? Always, always, yeah? always, yeah. I came back all the time because then I could afford it, right? Yeah. Um, and I mean... Well, you could have gone to Ibiza or... Yeah, yeah no. I don't know. Yeah, you would no, always came. Gone to Ireland making the time for well, it. Well, one of the things it. that really helped, again, always travel on someone else's coin... Um, was we had, the company I was working for had opened an office here in Ennis yeah. and hadn't been able to keep uh, a country leader yeah. in Ireland. So basically they were like, well, can you go? Because, you you know, you're sort of Irish. And, um, well, sort, sort of, of Irish, Irish. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. So you would dance and drink, no, no, I'm as Irish <laughs> as it gets, in spite of the stupid accent. <laughs> so I'd rock up. Well, it'd be interesting because, you know, you might send an email to make an appointment yeah. and obviously the name the name's very Irish and then you'd open your mouth and go, oh, oh, mm. you're English. And again, there was this... Um, This it was a very unusual feeling of the, of the whole dislocation because it wasn't just oh you're English, but then there was a huge suspicion about because you're English, you know, and, and I think it, it probably helps to remember that during the 80s and 90s there was this huge bombing campaign, right? Sure. So if you were Irish in England specifically, you were vermin. If you were English in Ireland, you weren't trustworthy. Again, yeah. so it sort of brought back that whole dislocation piece. But but anyway, I used to come to Ennis an awful lot yeah. until we found a great guy called Steve Burns who then ran the country. And I unfortunately couldn't come back as often. But it would be great because I'd bring mum, I'd pay for her flight, and oh, cool, we'd pick yeah. up a hire car yeah. in Dublin. And we'd come the weekend before and we'd pick up a hire car, which was paid by the company. We'd go up to Monaghan. And then drive across to Mayo, and then I'd leave Mum in yeah. Mayo, and then I'd drive down to Ennis. So at that stage, you would have been retired anyway, and um, you had the money to pay for that. So yeah, it was exactly. a very different situation from when your parents first emigrated. Totally, totally so different. Now we can do it, and they. Yeah, yeah, but I'd, pr I'd probably come five or six times a year. Yeah, even yeah. if it was just for a long weekend or work yeah. and that's always been the case until I came back yeah. I was you know even when we were in Berlin together I would come here five or six times a year yeah, yeah. so um, but, but coming back to live in Ireland was not really on your mind at all no, at that point there no. was still you want to travel the world and mm -hmm. you know advance your career and all that yeah so Okay, you went to Montreal then. I went to Montreal, spent and three years there, three very, very happy years. Yeah. Montreal's an amazing place. But that makes it straight off a lot more, a lot easier, I would imagine, because they are somewhat European there. Yeah. Um, the language is obviously no problem whatsoever. And there's a, so no, there if you was... meet your own socioeconomic group, 
yeah. much more readily than you would have met in Singapore, for example. Oh, t- totally. The and language was... In Irish, English, English, Irish, and the, 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 the paddy in, in Luton, like, that wouldn't, wouldn't have been an issue at all anymore. No, again, it was really easy to integrate and to a certain yeah. extent just be who you wanted to be. Yeah. And that said, I mean, an awful lot of people knew me already because we'd been working together over mm. years. Um, but outside of work, you could be who who you wanted to be. And it was interesting because in Montreal, so you say language isn't an issue, but, you know, uh, Quebec, uh, you know, French is the second official second language of Canada, but it's the first language in the province of Quebec. Yeah. And um, so sometimes it could be you, you, you would, and oh, Jesus Christ, my school, you know, I was trying to, scrape to the back of my brain to where that French was and used to be and in the end I, I took lessons. But they lessons. would have English though, they might want to use it but they would have English, wouldn't they? Oh, t- uh, virtually everyone in Montreal is perfectly bilingual. The further yeah. east you go, if you go out to Quebec City or the eastern townships, a lot of people are not, a lot of people only speak French. Oh really? Yeah. And, in school they really have to do both. No, they don't have to do both. Really? They have yeah. to do oh, French. Okay. All schooling is done yeah. in French. They don't have to do I English at all. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, the Parti Québécois and the Bloc are quite powerful and um, have a great deal of influence in in Quebec, uh, in Canada, I should say. So no, no, French is the first language. And they they even have the French police, you know, and they have like stuff with signage. The French has to be, I don't know, three to five times larger than the English. Yeah, Yeah, and they would come around. I like it. In those days, you know, we had landlines and, and yeah, I had to change my voicemail every day, yeah. right? And you had, the message had to be in French. <laughs> so it's stuff like that, right? So, but, um, and that's got something to do with my next move, actually, the whole French piece, because when I did finally decide to leave this mad company, mm-hmm. so this company was privately owned and owned by one man and, and, and I guess his family. And he was someone I never felt comfortable with. A lot of people thought he was a genius. I thought if he had any skill, it was hiring great people and keeping them. I thought the man was an absolute megalomaniac at best and and a fucking narcissist at worst and a bit of a psychopath. Um, Never really liked him. After about my first two years in Montreal, I, I, I almost actively was trying to get fired because <laughs> I'd been there for so long I thought I'd get the payout I just couldn't do it anymore the values misalignment was was profound and it wasn't um oh you know oh look at woke me with my values it was it was a profound mistreatment of people yeah. profound and, and it went against all of my values and because I was earning quite a lot of money now I could these were values I could finally afford to have yeah. in my early 40s I could afford these values um Anyway, I, I decided I was going to leave and it, it did cause a bit of a stir because I was someone that knew everyone because I'd worked in Asia, I'd worked in the Americas. Oh, yeah, of course, you, you I, have a network which you yeah. carry with you in your yeah. pocket. And, and, no and in that three yeah. years, the first year, I was three weeks out of four traveling I, yeah. in the Americas. I was all over the US, Brazil, Mexico. Were you tied to live? Uh, was, your, was your job tied to the um, My permit. permission yeah. to live in Canada? My work permit. Yes, it was. All right. One of the things I did after I'd been there for three months was start um, permanent residence application oh, right. okay. because I knew that I was probably going to leave because I I just could not bear this man. Okay, that's work. But would you have considered as well, at least in the back of your head, well, maybe Canada's actually oh, absolutely. the place I would 
Canada. Love I was staying. Yeah. I was staying in Canada. Really? Yeah. I was absolutely staying in Canada. But yeah. I thought you liked warm weather and all that. Yeah, I have to say that the snow. But if you embrace the snow, you know, no bad weather, any bad clothes, and all of that. Well, that's true. Malarkey. But if you embrace the snow, yeah. and I mean, what I what I it's cold, but. Um, only if you go outside. And when you go outside, there's always a beautiful blue sky. Mm. You know, it's not like here or in England where you sometimes get that sort of low, heavy, grey misery, right? Mm. Um, so there was, there was always bright sunshine and a blue sky. And uh, and you just got out and you learned how to enjoy the snow. Um, but no, I was staying in Montreal. I was absolutely staying. So hence, I got my permanent residence. Well, that would have been Montreal, not Canada as a whole, like because you're a city girl after all, aren't yeah. you? Yeah, yeah. So it's it's the city itself that would do it for you. Um, it was plus both. maybe the Canadian dollar and the lifestyle. Overall. It was both. It was both. Yeah. The Canadians um, sort of reminded me of the Australians in that I I think both of them huge generalization coming up and anecdotal, but this is I how I've with my experience I find them really expansive in their feeling mm. in their sorry in their thinking for the most part and and you know if you go to montreal the the least amount of people are bilingual most people are trilingual or multilingual Yeah. Uh, because they come from somewhere else. It's a huge city of immigration because the St. Lawrence River, you know, goes all the way down and yeah. Montreal's an island on the St. Lawrence River and, and it's a huge Irish population there. They thought they were going to New York and got dropped off at a place yeah. called Griffintown and then, you know, realised they weren't in the US at all. But unlike the, the US, there is a huge, generally speaking, a, a huge imp It, diversity is really embraced and celebrated, celebrated. Um, so it's a great place to be. In fact, when I moved to Berlin, it really reminded me of Montreal. There is this uh, live and let live, right? There yeah. is this expansive thinking yeah. and it shows up in a way of being. And you get that in most of, uh, most Canada, not everywhere. Um, Toronto's a bit more like, you know, a typical American city. Vancouver's very cool. Ottawa's amazing, Quebec City's amazing. There's loads of places. And Canadians are just super friendly, yeah. super friendly. And and again, I think it has something to do with the population. You know, there's, it's such a large landmass and such a small population, a bit like Australia. People yeah. have room. And I think that gives you room in your head, right, to be, and room in your heart to, to, to just fucking nice <laughs> you know and it, and it doesn't show up as this is mine get off my land here's my gun let me shoot you it shows up as aren't we lucky you know um and it's beautiful it's stunning you know the geography of it is stunning so no i was staying and i and i got my permanent residence um four months after i left <laughs> <laughs> okay life takes a different turn um those things happen but so canada and you went back home Home. No. No? No. <clears throat> I went from Montreal to... Sorry, I... So this company, this man, he's called the Madness of Robert Miller. His name's Robert Miller, and, and actually recently, and I'm going to go on the record to say this, um, there was a documentary made by the CBC, wow. a Canadian broadcasting company, about him... Allegedly, and I will say allegedly, because I don't want to get you into trouble, allegedly like um, <laughs> paying um, underage girls for sex. And it did not come as any surprise to me at all. But it's been devastating for everyone that works at Future Electronics because they're good people. And it's been dev especially devastating for the people who really had faith 
in this guy. I never did. Um, so I was, but I didn't want. It was it was not a nice thing to be right about. To be perfectly honest, and now I never thought he was a sex pest, but I knew he was a fucking nutter. But anyway, my time with him had come to an end. I had not managed to get fired despite doing everything. And people, it became it became a bit of an in joke. Everyone in the executive team knew they're like, Jesus Christ, Ben, can't believe you said that to Mr. Miller in front of everyone, and you're still here. And I'm like, I know, I'm going for the package, you know. Um, anyway, he didn't fire me. Much to my disappointment, so I had to go and find another job. Now, this is the, the this is why the French piece is 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 important because the only other large employer. In uh, Montreal, which was Anglophone as well as Francophone, was Bombardier. Oh, yeah. Sure. Um, and everyone that left Future went to Bombardier, and Mr. Millie used to get really upset and threaten not to buy their planes anymore, and Bombardier used to just lift the middle finger and go, we, yeah, really, what you don't, do? we really don't care. <laughs> um, so I, long story short, went to work for Bombardier, and it was... Um, I thought originally going to be in Montreal. Yeah. Um, and that's what I was interviewing for. And then one day I had many interviews. And one day the guy that was interviewing me, Jean Levert, said, there's a guy here, uh, Jean-Luc, and we'd like you to talk to him. He heads, he's a senior VP of HR or whatever in Berlin. And I'm like, Berlin? Oh, yeah. Anyway, so it would appear that they had a whole other division. It was headquartered in Berlin. It was called Transportation. I was looking at Aerospace. And um, they just decided that I would be better suited to a big transformation opportunity there. So a job in transformation and transitions. Long story short, I took it. I went to Berlin. And um, they basically said, you know, we just get you to work on this for two years and we'll because I said, you know, I've got my PR, I'm getting my PR and I want to stay in Montreal. And they're like, yeah, no, we'll, we'll just do a two-year sort of stint yeah. and we'll send you back. But but we'd like to put you on the German um, payroll, otherwise it gets really complicated with expats okay. and taxes. And so that made me feel really uncomfortable. But anyway, in the end, I said yes. And so that was it. And I moved to Berlin in... Um, August 2007. Yeah. And originally for two years. So that makes it then after all 13 years in Berlin. Yeah. Isn't it the best? It is the best. <laughs> it is the best. It. I don't think I could have moved anywhere else in Germany after Montreal. Oh, yeah, the rest of shit didn't. I, I really don't. I think Berlin was... For all the reasons I've just said that I loved Montreal and Canada, Berlin was exactly the same. Yeah. And, you know, you know where I ended up living. I didn't know where I was going. We had this... Well, of course, it's a, it's a white spot on the map to some degree. Like Yeah. yeah. Well, this, this, this um, company that Bombardier worked with to sort of relocate you, sure. um, they said, oh, so I went on this familiarization trip <coughs> for four days from Montreal. And one of the days was spent going around and looking at... at, at possible places to live and the woman that worked on this with me had spent quite a bit of time with me on the phone in Montreal and asked some really incisive questions about what I liked and where I wanted to live and so she showed me some amazing apartments but one of the things I said to her was I want to be able to walk to work because I was sick of commuting I'd done it for years I wanted to be able to walk to work when Canada would have been driving yeah 40 yeah. minutes in Singapore you wouldn't have I got the bus. I didn't even have a car there. Yeah, I got the bus and had to stand up with, yeah. Um, it, was, it wasn't pleasant <laughs> in, in Singapore. 
So I said I wanted to work, uh, walk to work. So she just drew us a, a, a one kilometre, mm-hmm. um, you know, radius around where the Bombardier offices were in Schoenberg Ufer at the time, sort of Kreuzberg Tempelhof, um, yeah. and uh, and then the the place where I eventually lived was the place I saw last and liked most. Um, And again, I got, you know, a really good deal because a friend of mine was already working in Bombardier, someone I'd known in the UK, um, and he was in Germany, and he said, you really need to negotiate this amount. I said, oh, okay, you sure? Because I didn't know how much rents were. And um, so I negotiated at the time my total package with in my head 2000 euros a month for rent because that's what Paul told me to to get and when I finally took this flat it was only inverted commas 1200 a month so I was quids in and it was only when I moved in and realized that actually because I thought everyone lived in apartments like mine because I know you saw it and I loved it it was quite beautiful um and and not only did they not but they were all paying 300 euros a month And then it's once you get a place. I mean, it's tricky enough to find a yes. place, but once you get a place, yeah. it is a cheap city to live oh, in. Oh, totally. So cheap to Very live hard in. to come by yeah. any um, vacant apartments. Well, now once, it is. I mean, yeah. when I first got there, I mean, I think yeah. that all changed in about 2014. Yeah. But yeah, but now, yeah, but it's still cheap But it's cheap still a cheap in. place yeah. once you find one because yeah. there's rent control in place. Yeah. And there's, yeah. there's always a great comparative because all the records are public. And, yes, um, and you get the spiegel, the spiegel, the um, rent spiegel. Yeah, the yeah. rent mirrors, yeah. they call yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Once you live in a place and it's yours for life, as long yeah. as you pay the rent, it's so difficult yeah. for landlords to turf you out. Yet there's there's legislation in place, and the traditional reg- legislation where landlords and tenants are alike are protected by the law. Yeah. You know, if someone doesn't pay the rent, um, then the state jumps in straight away, like and pays the rent. For, to the landlord who may have to pay a mortgage yeah. until that's sorted out. And sense, uh, likewise, it? the landlord is not just able to turf you out. No. Hence, people are bringing their own wallpaper and carpets. Um, and, to kitchens. An kitchens. and kitchens. And kitchens. <laughs> there, there, there's a pipe sticking out of the kitchen wall. <laughs> there's no sink, no nothing. And yeah. you just bring all your own gear. Yeah, I had to negotiate my, but my it does kitchen. Work. Yeah, it's no, organically yeah, grown, obviously not what they have in this country at yeah, the yeah. moment, like where it's all mm. arse boys, but because it's organically grown, like it actually works. And it does like work. most of my friend friends, they would have been um born obviously in hospitals, but they would have been born into apartments and their parents are still living there, yeah. they know in their whatever eighties. Yeah. And they, they lived there for sixty years. Yeah. No, it's, um, it's it's yours and you look after yeah. your rented apartment as yeah. much as you would look after your own house yeah no i think it's uh, it was i think it's hard for people in ireland and england to get their head or britain to get their heads around that system but it does work it's so super fi- uh, efficient and effective although there have been a few things that have gone on in berlin with foreign investment to to start breaking that system down but um it is but you're right you know there there is protection and, and it's the mindset of people and yeah. as long as totally. it's the same as money like money itself isn't worth anything mm-hmm. we all have to believe that it's worth yeah. something and then it works yeah exactly exactly Exactly. But yeah, so that worked to my favour when I left. I mean, obviously I left because my flat was sold. Yeah. And I had tried to buy my flat two times before. Um, I'd offered (sighs) the owner and he didn't want to sell. And then he decided he would sell it. Um, And I remember I was there for 13 years. He bought it for 265,000 euros and he sold it for 750,000. Yeah. Well, it so was good for him. It was a beautiful spot, and it was, it was. a beautiful apartment, very spacious yeah. as well. Like yeah. obviously, way too big for one person. 
when you yeah. think about it. Like, yeah. Oh no, it's great uh, for me. I mean, it's great. But you would have. You wouldn't have. Uh, that would have been a, a sort of a business investment for you. You wouldn't have seen out your Jays in Berlin, would you? As great as the places. I don't know. I, I probably not because being single already. In your mind, it was grown that you wanted to move to Ireland. Well, yeah. So One I mean, of the that first was... conversations we ever had was actually, yeah, I'm Irish, fair enough. I know that you're Irish in spite of the accent. Mm. And you had this, this, you communicated that very strong kind of uh, feeling towards Ireland and that you actually want to live there. Yeah. Well, I knew eventually I didn't want to grow old and get ill in Berlin because the only person that would fall on it would be Chloe. And she'd have to navigate a whole system structure and process that was different to one she knew and in German. And I just thought that's not fair. And going through how difficult it was, I was the executor for my friend that I mentioned earlier, my tour friend that drew up this list of pros and cons for me, Catherine. I was the executor for her will in, in 2016 when she died. And it was tough. It was tough. Um, very tough. Tough emotionally, but tough. Just tough. There's so much bullshit you have to deal with. And it takes so long. And there's so many phone calls you need to make and, and forms you need to fill and emails you need to send. It's a, it's a lot of work. Yeah. So I thought, I'd, you know, at some point, you know, I, I, I leave. Where will I go? I knew after the June 2016 that I had no intention of ever going back to the Brexit bitch. So... Um, where am I going to go? Well, I don't really want to go and learn another language. How many languages did you actually learn? Because a German, I know that is actually very good. But well, that's living 13 years in the place. Very kind of you to say so. Very kind of you to say so. Well, my French got better when I was in Montreal. You had um, French in school. I had French in school, but the, did you do courses or? I did courses then in yeah. in Montreal, um, but the, my best language ever but it's all gone from my head, was Spanish. I, I loved Spanish. I loved speaking Spanish. I found it really, really easy to learn. It's quite an easy language yeah. to learn, especially if you compare it to German. Jesus, really easy. I had five-year-olds speak it. fucking <laughs> <laughs> difficult. <laughs> but when I, went to, when I went to Montreal, it's like every last piece of Spanish. Well, when I, when I first heard people speaking French, and the only thing that would come to mind was Spanish. And I think that's the way your brain works. It's like, oh, it's not English. Bring another language quick. Oh, here, will this do? <laughs> well, okay, no, Spanish it's doesn't make sense to some yeah. degree as well because it's widely spoken. Yes, and it's a Latin language. But anyway, that sort of went when I filled my head with French. And then when I came to Berlin, um, I, didn't, I didn't really learn uh, German for the first five years because my life... I, yeah, oh, you were traveling. You were still yeah. traveling a lot. Still traveling loads. Yeah. yeah, I mean, ridiculously... Uh, Ridiculously, so much so, in fact, I don't know if I've told you this story that the president of Bombardier that I was working for at the time, a guy called Andre Navarri, said to me, um, You should be using Bombardier was an aerospace company, right? So we had private jets, we had a Lear 45 and a Global Express. And did you get to travel in private jets? Oh, yeah, yeah, didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, sure, well, he said, much nicer to you. Yeah. <laughs> he said to me, You're traveling so much. Well, I had just finished working for them before I met you because um, I met you guys That's in 2012 true, yeah. yeah he said uh, so the last about 18 months I was there he said you really need to he, he said just check the schedule with Wolf like the chief pilot just check the schedule with Wolf and he said I want you to take the Lear 45 because one of, one of the Lear 45 sorry we had two in the <laughs> you should take one of the Lear 45s because you're traveling so much and you know if that had been in my 30s or 40s I'd have thought or early 40s I should say I was in my 40s at the time I'd have thought, Jesus, I've really made it. And I just thought, fuck. 
There's only two good things about the amount of business travel I do. That's the bonus points and the duty-free. And now yeah. both have gone. Yeah. And now both have gone. Yeah. So for the last 18 months, I, I traveled on the private jet. But it's not time. quite a... It's, it's a thought we shouldn't really entertain because what would we have done if we would have had access to a private jet in our early 20s? Oh, my God. We wouldn't have made it 27. <laughs> and, <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> and our net, our net impact on the, on, the, on the climate would be an awful lot worse than it already is. <laughs> we, we wouldn't have done much damage to the climate because, I mean, in your early 20s... <laughs> access to a private jet now come on <laughs> it would have been short but it would have been extremely fun it would I tell you it was it, it, it's just so so weird because I remember thinking this is just like I should think how oh, I've made it and now I'm just really pissed off yeah. and that was sort of the beginning of the end I was working an awful lot I was earning an awful lot and I didn't sure. have any time to spend it on yeah. my friendships were getting fractured relationships were getting sure. fractured it was just like no it has to stop it yeah. has to stop and so i made it stop um but yeah so at some point in my head when i was coming to ireland and i'd bring my mom and i'd go down to work in ennis yeah. i was watching two of my cousins build a house and i said to my mom i'm gonna build a house on dad's land one day yeah and um, so all of my cousins knew about this. And we're trying to work it out a little while ago with one of my cousins. And it must be 25, 26 years ago that I made this decision. I just made the decision. And I had a photograph of the land with the old house by my desk for years in Canada. I had it in Berlin. I had it at, uh, when I worked from home in Berlin. Um, and then it's... It is a long story and it's quite a dull story, but it's happening. And so then it was like, okay, well, I, I want to leave Berlin before I get really old. I don't want to go to Brexit Britain. Yeah. I don't want to learn another new language. Yeah. I want to build a house in Ireland. Yeah. So then it was like, okay, it's time. And uh, by that point, I'd already put in for planning, as you know. Um, and that became incredibly difficult. Yeah. Um, very, very difficult. Um, but in the end, we got there. Um, with the red roof and the barn, uh, but we got there, yeah. So but you know, this, this is a discussion actually for another day, which mm. I, I'd say, like you know, um, maybe in about two years' time. Yeah, you, you need <laughs> yeah. sort of a year and a bit of to experience get some in distance that place then to actually know what you let yourself in for, because now is actually the first time. When did you come here? 2020, wasn't it? I came in uh, 1st of October 2020. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's the first time you actually lived in Ireland now. So yep. we're kind of two and a half years into your yep. Irish adventure. Yeah. And coming from, okay, Singapore, I'd say that that's completely mad. Even like looking back, that's that's very different. Yeah. But Montreal and Berlin would be somewhat, you know, would somewhat compare to yes, something in Ireland. Yeah. Um, so now you're in Canvara for two and a half years yeah. and you're still traveling. Not as much, obviously. Not as much, no. But, Post-COVID um, world, yeah. But, I mean, that must be a real culture shock. Or is it just that you're just mature enough now to absorb that a lot easier? I think it's both. Um, I think the, there wasn't so much a culture shock coming back here. It, but w what was difficult was it was covid and I think I've just got so used to integrating myself socially wherever I go somehow. And I know it takes 12 to 18 months. That's for me, that's the bar. 12 yeah. to 18 months before I'm really rocking and rolling and, you know, and have established mm -hmm. a network of people that I really sure. like and respect. 
And that simply didn't happen here, obviously. Yeah. Um, you know, I got here, had to do my two-week self-isolation, and four days later, the country shut down, and yeah. we had two kilometers. The first year was shit yeah. for, for all of us. Yeah. Um, at yeah. the same time, you 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 knew some people here, you knew us to begin well, with, and then and it was and easy that, enough to... Absolutely. So I was going to say, that's why I'm here. And I mean, off, I... Like, but uh, now that's, say, a year and a half now, mm. living in Kinvara. Yeah. Oh, I love and it. I love it. Compared to Berlin, like, I find a couple of things really hard to take. What do you find? And other things. Um, well, it's 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 not so much Kinvara. It's really living, and not Ireland either. I mean, the language is fine in spite of the odd accent, but it's it's um, living in the countryside. Like, I lived in cities all my life. Yeah. And um, obviously the last uh, time I lived in Berlin for just over seven years was a complete eye-opener because being from the West, living in the East, like, yeah. that, that, that was a completely different exp- experience. Poland, like, which as I, I used to, to call it. Karlshorst. <laughs> I love it, but it was 45 minutes away and uh, the cigarettes were half the price. <laughs> which makes them, what, uh, 20% of what they're here now. Oh, my God. Um, yeah. But it's... Um, just this whole city thing, living in the countryside, I, I find at times very charming, mm. knowing people, the pace of life, being mm. a lot slower, just stopping here and there and having a chat. Um, yet, and people having the time, not just myself having the time, people, people having, having the time, time. taking the time to have the, the chat. The whole saluting culture. But yeah. sometimes it's, it, it, it can feel a little bit um, I, that you're being... Not monitored, that's not the right word, but that someone keeps an eye on you. You know, people know um, where you have been. Oh, I heard you have been there. Yeah. Not that I really care if, no. if anyone had seen me in yeah. a place, yeah. but someone else bringing it to me that they've heard that I was there mm. and they make it their business to mm. inform me that they know. That's kind of what the fuck are you talking about, man? Yeah, I totally get that. I, I actually think it's going to get worse where I'm building. Um, well, it's even more rural than yeah, Kamara, yeah. Yeah, sure. I do get that. But part of the rural versus city thing, because I have always lived in lots of, you know, quite lovely, fast-paced, energetic, yeah. Yeah. exciting, diverse cities. Um, so p- part of my mental preparation took that into account. I mean, I knew, you know, it's a bit like when I went to Singapore, right? There were certain things I knew were going to be different, right? You, so you can think your way around it. You can use all the logic and rigor in the world. Mm. But what you 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 cannot really work out is how it's going to make you feel. Yeah. Um, and so sure. I didn't, I also didn't expect to have a feeling of integration when I came because I'd spent long enough coming back here being a bit dislocated anyway. Yeah. And, and I've had a lot of experience I me mean, when I was first here as well and some people we know um you know there, there's one person that said uh they didn't know my last name and when when I told them they said oh Jesus why didn't you say Jesus I thought you were English <laughs> <laughs> but right in there implicit in that is yeah. some real racism right yeah. some so, some real prejudice yeah. then if it's yeah, not it's... racism it's prejudice and so I knew that there was there was there was not going to be this magical integration, and I also knew that going from city to 
a rural environment was, was going to be difficult. In fact, and part of that is why I'm here in Kinvera, down to you and Annette. You know, Annette said you can't go from the middle of Berlin to the edge of the Atlantic Ocean. You just can't do it. <laughs> Come and have that soft landing here. Yeah. And if it hadn't been for you two, I mean, Jesus Christ, I moved into your house. I got your neighbours. I got your friends. I'm living your life. I now live on the same street as you. <laughs> I'm stalking your life. So, I mean, you know, thanks to you two, it was a very soft landing, given quite difficult circumstances with COVID right um so that was great and it was great having you two up the road you know when i didn't have internet and whatever and i was able to come over but here that's, and work that's and commodity like yeah. that's that's fine but you would have worked it out yourself as much as I we did done. because we i would have done but it was still lovely to have you yeah. here i know, you know of course it it's always great. good to have someone point of oh, reference God, and yeah. where is this and how do i exactly. know about that exactly yeah just the, yeah. you know the lowdown yeah, a bit yeah. of the lowdown which was great um yeah, and I found a huge welcome. So even when Bertie and Francis moved out, they were only yeah. there for a few short weeks. Yeah. But the people that moved in, Milana Marino, were just yeah. great people, really nice people as well. So there has been a great welcome. But what you said about, it's not about being monitored, but it is about in a closely knit community, yeah. people see you, yeah. you are seen. Of course, and I yeah. mean that, you know, sort of spiritually and emotionally as well yeah. as physically, you are seen and you, you're included and you matter. Yeah. Um, and the other side of that same course point is everyone knows your fucking business yeah. but see in, in and it's interesting to them yeah yeah that's the one thing i don't get because in berlin i would have you we would have met our neighbors every day yeah um we would have met the same people in the same shop or at yeah. work but nobody would make it their business whatever your business is no. that's just some no. something i don't really um i yeah, I can't get my head around in this particular culture in Ireland, uh, particularly rural Ireland, that they make it their business to inform you that they know your business and you're yeah. their concern. Yeah. And it's not really in a concerning or caring kind of yeah. way. It's really like, oh, I just wanted to know, uh, wanted to let you know, I know. I know. I what the fuck are you on about? It is a bit... Um, <laughs> As if I've done something. Yeah, like. I, I, yeah. So, I mean, I'm at this stage in my life where I couldn't give a flying fuck. You know, it's like I, I'll, I'll put my photos in the iCloud because if you want to look at my photos or steal them, you know, yeah. knock yourself out. I don't care. But sometimes there is... that. I had an example. In January, my friend Jeanette was over and we'd gone up to, to Mayo and we were looking at the building. She was kind enough to help me with a load of stuff and we were staying in Belize for the night. Mm. So thank you for that. And she said, should we pop into Ballycastle for a drink? And I said, I'd love to, because I wouldn't go in on my own, right? There's only two pubs open now. I think there were nine or 13 there originally. And uh, there's only two pubs reopened since COVID. So we go into Healy's and we go in. It's a weeknight. So you didn't expect the place to be jammers, you know. But there were three people in the bar and then the barman. And... Um, it, obviously they wanted to know who we were and, you know, everything, the conversation stopped, you know, that way. And um, they they got a great excuse to start talking to us because when Jeanette ordered, she's got a very Glaswegian accent. So one of the, one of the members of the public said, oh, are you tourists? And she said, I am. She said, but she's not pointing to me. Uh, she's actually building. And... <laughs> um, and so they all looked at me, where are you building? I said, oh, down by Dan Patrick Head. And the barman just stood and looked at me with, and pointed with his tea towel. And he just said, you're Benedict Burke. Yeah. And I was like, oh, Jesus. Okay, I mean, Burke? this is really ah, rude. Hey. They would have known yeah. as soon as you uh, yeah. identified the site. Like, yeah. oh, there's that <laughs> like, English oh, bitch who's building. Yeah. Like, yeah. And there's perception. And then it's yeah. obviously your turn to kind of win them around. Like, it was which, which is... 
Fair enough, like. It was great. I would yeah. definitely go back in there. You know, yeah. we, we were only in there an hour. I wasn't drinking because yeah. I was, you know, I was driving. But um, I had a glass of Guinness, but that was it. So, um, but it was a real case of rural networking yeah. because I just thought, here's my opportunity to show them that I'm not some fucking wanker. Yeah. And especially with the red roof coming, yeah. you know, I knew the red roof, the red roof wasn't on. Because um, that's going to, you know, that is going to be something everyone talks about. And they are, by the way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so I just thought this is the opportunity for them to sort of see that I'm just normal. And, yeah. and you know, there's no side to me at all. And, you know, by the time we left, the barman, who was lovely was telling me, you know, if I needed any help and I should go tell Mayo County Council to go fuck themselves and this, that and the other. And, and it was lovely and they all knew who I was and they all knew where we were staying and then one of them said, oh, you're my neighbour and he's uh, he's someone that knows Mark and his brother. And, you know, everyone knows everyone. And so, uh, but, but it was a useful opportunity to just sort of say, you know, here I am, the one that's, the, you know, the one. Who does the one think she is? I'm the one, and I'm all right, actually. I'm not too and bad. look, I get it, and I buy into it. I mean, closely-knit community, because there are not that many people there. They're, they rely on each other. They yeah. depend on each other to exactly. a certain degree. Yeah. If you need um, any help with anything, uh, whether it's your car wouldn't start, or you need an electrician, a pipe or whatever. you need a lift maybe. somewhere. Or exactly. Yeah. You just need to rely on people. And this I like about yeah. um closely knit communities, which mm. you can find in cities. Oh, you can. I really maintain oh, that. Yeah. Um, so, no, country life is, when you're not used to it, is something that takes a while to settle into. Um, I think I said to Bertie last week that um, at 25, I wouldn't have wanted to live in any no. place like Kinvar, North no. or Belly Castle. Mm. That would have been just horrible. It would have been a death sentence yeah. to in one form or another but um, at this point in our lives we can comfortably say well we have seen quite a lot of the other you places have. there to be seen yeah. and um, we can now make a conscious decision no actually this is nice and yeah. uh, we don't need the nightclubs and the 24 7 service and all the rest no. of it anymore and as long as you can afford it and yep. the countryside well you're going really remote but <laughs> and the countryside with the village sort of nearby yeah. Even I could still walk it. Not that I want to, yeah. but that's a comfort. But I, oh, yeah. I don't need that much anymore. The no. one pub around the corner is just good enough. And I know where the supermarket is. So if I drive up there uh, once a week or twice a week, that's grand. I don't need anything else really in my life. No, I'm the same. And I think it is about what stage of your life you're at and what sure. your aspirations are. You know, yeah. how you enjoy your time, what yeah. you want to do. Yeah. And I've been, you know, since I moved to here, you know, because obviously this is my second place in Kinvara, I've been really struck by the kindness of the people around me. You know, Antoinette and Sean are amazing yeah. people. And I feel looked after rather than watched yeah. by them. You yeah. know, there's a concern yeah. um, there. And there is literally nothing they wouldn't do. And... Um, that, you know, I'm going to, I'm really going to miss Kinvara, but without a doubt. I was saying to Annette today, I think I need to go back to plan A from years ago, which is uh, when I get this place built, if I don't have to release equity from, you know, the place I, I've got in England, I'm, I'll sell that at some point and, and get a shack on the beach somewhere warm. <laughs> be a shack <laughs> that's all I can afford but <laughs> but you had you had fucking plan A um, and plan B realised um, I didn't know plan B yet <laughs> actually situation A and situation B you yeah. interviewed Billy Bragg well where can you go from there 
uh, well, access to a private jet, but come on. <laughs> <There's>, <laughs> what else is there to come? <laughs> it's like you scored the winning goal in the World Cup. <laughs> this is it. 